Welcome to Talking Benjamins with your host, Benjamin. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to Talking Benjamins. Uh, we have a special guest today, Reagan Young. Um, what is super cool about um, my visit with him. So I, I listen to a lot of XM radio. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But uh, a lot of times there is commercials, right, of, of oh, the next greatest land play or, you know, basically all these things that you, you have to take with a grain of salt about all these different ways to invest your money. Well, Reagan Young's an alternative investment specialist. So basically, not talking about stocks, not talking about bonds. What are other ways that you can invest your money? Um, obviously, we talk a lot about real estate. Um, on, on Talking Benjamins, but uh, there's uh, many different ways in which you can invest. And, and Reagan runs a RIA, a registered investment advisory firm, and he specializes in these alternative investments. Any kind of investment that is outside of the stock or bond market, he's interested in. He does due diligence on. What I really like about it is, is because it is a registered investment advisory firm, a lot of these alternative, quote-unquote, alternative deals are run through what you call broker dealers and they're all they're taking big fees and when i say big fees i'm talking like the house the broker dealer's taking two to four percent and then the rep that's selling the deal is taking another five to eight nine ten percent so of every dollar there's 10 to 15 cents getting scraped off the front end before it actually gets into the deal um what we like about reagan is that when he goes looking for deals um, that front load, that 10 to 15%, uh, is not there. He makes a management fee. Um, and so we're always interested in what he has to say. We're always interested in the deals he finds, um, mainly because we find it's important when you invest your money to get a hundred cents on the dollar into in the investment or 95, 98, 99 cents on the dollar into the investment. Um, that way if the investment does well, um, you know, you're you're gaining that return as opposed to, you know, even if a, even if a broker dealer deal does well, um, you know, you're talking about 85 cents of the dollar that goes in. It does 10 percent. Um, it does 8.5 percent return. Sure, that's that's not bad. However, if you're in a RAA type deal, um, like like what Reagan does, it would be it would be the 10 it'd be the 10 cents on the dollar. So and get that full 10% return. Anyway, I digress. Um, whenever we talk about investing, listen closely to the disclosure. The purpose of this podcast is to entertain and inform, not to make any recommendations for you personally. So even if you think something you hear on this podcast is a good idea for you, don't do it. Consult a licensed professional that can work with you personally. All right, now without further ado, um, welcome Reagan Young. Reagan Young, dude. Thanks for being with me. Welcome. Good to be in Houston. <laughs> Just giving you a hard time. Good to be in Houston. So where'd you come from? Came from uh, Dallas, Texas. Nice. Born and raised in Richardson. Good deal, man. Whatever, you were a New Jersey boy for a while, weren't you? Jersey Shore? Lived in Jersey, just outside of Princeton. Not the Jersey Shore. Just outside of Princeton. Oh, that makes it sound hoity. You know? Central like, Jersey. Oh, just outside of Princeton, not Jersey Shore. Central Jersey. Gotcha. <laughs> Hey man, so uh, welcome to Talking Benjamins. But uh, uh, first question I, I want to ask, right? That I ask a lot of folks: what's what's important about money to you? Money, an old wise man told me once, is just a tool. It's used. Uh, God's given that to us to to use it for our purposes and whatever we feel is 
great. It's great to have it, but you also need to use it for 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 what it needs to be used for, I guess. But so in your world, what's it need to be used for? Um, I think I think it's used for many different things. I think it's good to, to for building stuff. It's good for investing in things to grow the economy, to help people out for food. Um, it's 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 a tool to live. It's a tool to uh, you know use it for uh, many uh, abundant things at the end of the day. So gotcha. All right, so we'll get into that, how you're a general contractor with that tool of money and, and, and how that's done. But, uh, but before we get into that, just another uh, background question for you, because um, I am super intrigued with what you do now, and obviously um, uh, we'll, we'll dive into that, but what was your first job ever? Mowing lawns. Mowing lawns? How old were you? I think I was six and a half years old. Probably 12, 13. <laughs> I started mowing, mowing the yards around the neighborhood. Yeah? How much were you bringing in? Uh, depending on the yard, it, between 15 and 20 bucks a yard. Yeah. So uh, I had about 20, uh, in high school I got to about 20, 25 yards. Shut up, dude. Are you serious? Yep. Because oh, you were like working down at Whataburger or something. You were. Uh... Well, I played sports. And so for right. me, time was an issue. So I come home and, and mowing lawns, I could mow that on the weekend or at nights or what have you and not have to be tied to a schedule. Right. So it was great because it got me out of the house and it paid better than you know, packing groceries. Heck yeah, dude. Nice. So entrepreneurial from the start, huh? I guess. It's more about money. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> paid better. Paid better. You were able to access a tool better. Yes. Right? <laughs> than, than, than working for somebody else. But, uh, so you're currently self-employed, right? I am. So what's your, what's your current uh, employment? I own my own registered investment advisory group, Oakwood advisory group, uh, in Dallas. And, um, I do financial planning, investments, insurance, and it's like Edward Jones. Not Edward Jones. Merrill Lynch. So not no, not it's independent. So what sets Oakwood apart? <laughs> uh, Oakwood is, was was started. Um, well, I guess it goes back to background, but it was started with the idea of having more of a niche. I didn't want to come out and be the same advisor as everybody else. Right. So based on my past experience on jobs that I've had and companies I've worked for, it was a, it was a place where um, I saw a potential niche in the marketplace where people weren't having the ability to access alternatives. So that's kind of been more my niche. Is, oh, let's step back just as a, what's, what do you mean alternative? So alternatives are basically um, investments that are not typically in the stock market. So not in your mutual funds, not your exchange traded funds not bonds, it's stuff like real estate, oil and gas, um, anything technically outside the stock market is kind of the definition in my view of alternatives. Um, and many people I think view that as risky and I view it as just a different asset class. Gotcha. So why would others view it as risky? I think it's just what they have learned um, or what they've been told that alternatives are, are risky. At the end of the day, um, I think it's more of not just being educational and not knowing. So, is that, so would you say that's a large part of Oakwood's deal is, is the due diligence on that to assess the risk? It is. So a lot of it uh, goes into, um, I find the joy of learning about all the stuff you can invest in. There's so many things outside the stock market that people aren't familiar with or don't know about. So 
it's always fun learning new industries, new strategies, new uh, ways to invest in your money in different different areas. Okay, so now I'm curious. What's so what's the what's the most unique way that you've seen to invest money in an alternative format? Well, I think that's the eye of the beholder, I guess, at the end of the day. But um, <clears throat> okay, the, the behold the eye we're talking about is Reagan Young. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, well, uh, we've had a Dorper sheep fund that's unique to a lot of people. What the heck's a Dorper sheep? Dorper, Dorp, Dorper, Dorp, Dorper. Is it it's different than like a regular like petting zoo sheep? Yeah, or like the ones running around New Zealand. Yeah, I, it, it's just high. It's specialized sheep that you, you have hamburgers and stuff like that with. So what? Hold on a second. So, but aren't sheep the ones that put out the uh, clothes, the wool? The wool does, but these aren't different type of sheep. I've never had a sheep burger. So I don't know the type of burger that they come out, but we sell it to like Whole Foods or we sell it to high-end hamburger places. So we have end buyers. So this is a high-end sheep to eat. We buy them uh, 60 pounds and we try to grow them to 90, or excuse me, around 100 to 110 pounds and sell them. Dang, dude, that's a big sheep. So it takes about 90 to 120 days to get them fat and sell them off. Now I'm thinking of a feedlot. So it's a small fund. <laughs> Nodding your head. <laughs> it's a small fund. I don't. Um, I don't think Peter listens to us. <laughs> That's good. Um, but I, I have a partner, Aaron Cook, and he and I. Or it's basically his fund, but he and I partner together on many different funds. But that's and so what, like some farmer came to you and be like, "Hey, I, I can dump some. You know, if I have money, we can make more money." What's this scales up? How does that work? So originally, we, we had talked about doing a a cattle fund or a livestock fund basically. Yeah. And so when Aaron and I had originally talked, um, the plan originally was to do more of, you know, cows and that sort of thing. So either buying land or going out and leasing land, raising a fund, hiring a cattle rancher, doing the exact same thing with cattle. Um, and then through his connections, he met a guy that has done this stuff with sheep. And so essentially we went that route instead. All right. So let's see. So I got, let's say I got some money. All right. So I, I put, uh, whatever dude, I, I put a hundred, I put a thousand dollars into a Dorper, a Dorper sheep fund. So I put a thousand dollars into a Dorper sheep fund. What, what kind of returns do you make on Dorper sheep? So that fund is set up, um, uh, <clears throat> as a, uh, it's a preferred return. So again, there's costs associated with getting them fed and that sort of yeah. thing. And you have some, the risk of disease that could kill off some we Some kill sheep. them all, right? So if, you kill, if, if, if they all died, then you'd get a 0% return on your investment. Correct. Okay. Unless, it's, unless they're spread out or they're in different lots or something like that. Right. Um, so that fund's set up as a 10% I call preferred return. So uh, that basically the 10% goes to the investors first, and then there's a 50-50 profit share above that. So this year, we're annualizing out around 14 15% to investors. So they get the 10% pref and then there's, so we're basically making around 20%. So it's like a 20% spread on door per sheep then. Yeah. Now the, the operator's making money though. The operator's getting paid. Um, the, so there's the, the 20%, rancher. 20% margin is after the rancher's getting paid. Correct. So he's just what? Taking a salary. He is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he's not involved in the investment side. No. Gotcha. No. So Aaron gets a, I think small management fee, um, then there's the 10% preferred and then there's the profit share. So a lot of that comes down ultimately to what we buy the sheep for. So the goal is trying to find the sheep for 60, 70, uh, or the sheep that are around 60, 70 pounds. Where does one source 
Dorper sheep. <laughs> I'm not sure to be honest with you. The uh, but there are a number of areas where people buy. I know some people that grow chickens or chicks. Yeah. And so they'll buy them at two pounds and sell them at ten pounds, and then someone takes over and does that. So, from my understanding, is kind of we're doing the same. There's people that get sheep at birth and they'll sell them off at sixty pounds. Gotcha. To us. And you're going from sixty to one hundred and ten and going to market. Correct. Gotcha. And we have an end buyer, so that's not the issue. The issue is more buying it. So we, been, so the end buyer is like, hey, I need more Dorper sheep. Yeah. And you're like, okay. Yeah, so it's more of us finding the sheep. So we've limited that fund to a smaller fund, but um, basically because we don't have um, um, we don't have the ability to go buy a bunch of sheep. It, when it comes available, we, we increase the fund size, but we don't have the ability to just say, hey, let's get all this money in the door. Because there's only that many Dorper sheep out Correct. there. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the most unique one, I guess. So that's the most, so that's the most unique one way of alternative investing that you've seen. What would you say your favorite alternative investment out there is? Favorite one? Um, Throughout your whole career. How, how long have you been doing this? So I started alternatives back in probably 2009. I did class B and C apartments. Gotcha. Started getting into it then. Just something unique outside the stock market. Um, when I started Oakwood in 2012... Uh, I've been doing financial planning since 2000, so basically right. 18 years. Now, when you're out in Jersey, out in Princeton, <laughs> when you're out in Princeton, um, you were for a big-time firm, and you were involved in their alternative? So I worked with a couple firms up there, but um, the last one is was a higher net worth firm, basically, and they're... Um, it was the, it really Princeton, opened. It was the <laughs> Princeton folks no. that would invest in the... Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, they... It just really opened my eyes to, I mean, the average client there was around $10 million. And so it opened my eyes to what the ultra wealthy kind of invested. And you saw, you know, some of the private equity deals they invest in. You saw some of the other stuff outside the stock. They still had an allocation to the market, but it wasn't um, a big portion of their overall allocation. And that's proved up if you look at any kind of Yale endowment fund or Harvard endowment fund. You start seeing what their allocation is overall. Um, but it's also a situation where they can wait on that money. It's not liquid money. So, um, the endowments of the world, they, they can invest in those things because they don't have to be liquid. Basically. Sure. Sure. So, so that's from, from that firm, I, I, I always thought, well, if I could do that for the, the upper middle class or the, you know, the middle class, if I could bring that space of alternatives or stuff that private equity slash whatever you want to call it down to the average Joe or maybe someone just doing a little bit better than the average Joe, you know, that's kind of something that's what I wanted Oakwood to be basically. Right. Oh, very cool. So, so Oakwood started in 12, 2012 and it's been going strong since then. Gotcha. And so throughout your whole career, what that, that most unique investment or not unique, excuse me, your your favorite investment. Uh, my, probably my favorite overall is, is mobile home parks just because what it's, It's just investing in mobile home parks. So you sit down in front of somebody and you're like, hey, so I got this great real estate. Yeah. No, it's a great start. It's a great starter conversation because it, just like you did, it, it, it opens people's eyes up like, hmm. But uh, I don't ever want to be the main person. Um, I want to work with people that know what they're doing. And right. if I can find those folks, okay, this is their full-time job. This is what they do best. And I could bring my clients into to that situation um, and be a part of it. That's ultimately kind of my job as an advisor. Um, the mobile park is, we work out a group out of Colorado. They're second or third largest 
operator in the country. And even at that, they might have 300 parks and right. there might be 50,000 parks in the country. So, so parks are big mom and pop. Big mom and pop. Kind of deal. Big mom and pops. Because you said 300 of 50,000? Correct. And they're... They're like the third largest operator. Dang. Who's the first largest? Probably Equity Lifestyles. Yeah. It's owned by um, Sam Zell. So if you look up him. But he buys a lot of parks on the coast. Uh, California right. and Florida. So those $500,000 mobile homes? Yeah. With the ocean view? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. $1,500 a month lot rent. So, um, but it's, it's to me though, it's just a, I don't call it recession proof, but it's one that people always go live somewhere. Yeah. And I, I always say, well, you could live in a class C apartment, one bedroom, two bedroom apartment in a bad part of town, or you can live in a three bedroom, two bath, nice mobile home and pay probably less rent. Yeah. And it's just kind of the stigma of yeah. being in a park. But if you can be in a three bedroom, two bath house, and pay two fifty, three hundred bucks lot rent. Yeah, it's going to be a lot better than living in a bad part of town. So. No man, I I get that, dude. I, I I think about that often. You know, a lot of times it's like, um, so there's a lot of development up where we live at, and and there's uh, you know, there's a handful of mobile home parks, right? And of course, the upper middle class gets up there, and they're like, oh, the mobile home park over there across <laughs> the street. And there's no, it's not. And again, it's 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 clean. There's not a lot of crime. Right. Um, and so, but. It has that stigma, like you talked about, you know. But if I'm if I'm on a limited income, and I'm a single parent trying to raise a couple kids or whatever, like I said, I can have a classy apartment and and send my kids to a pretty rough school, or I can get up into the burbs and send my kids to a great school. Sure, um, you know that's uh, that's, and, that's an impressive opportunity. And you have a yard. I mean, most apartments, you know, obviously you don't have a yard with that or. You could have a pet in a mobile home park where you probably wouldn't have yeah, an like apartment. Yeah, like a pit bull stake out in front of that. <laughs> so, uh, but and, and one of the things I like about that group is they typically have a manager, a property manager that lives on site. And so they're proud to live there as well. Right. And so they keep it clean. They try to keep it updated and that sort of thing as well. So it's sure. not, and, and they, they, they are picky on where they buy the parks. Typically it's the Midwest, Great Plains areas, hardworking people that um, just provides some stability to the overall uh, marketplace. Gotcha. Very cool, man. So what kind of returns do people get on mobile home parks? Uh, it depends. I say that. What kind of what returns have your clients received on mobile home parks? So typically we're paying 8 to 9% uh, on a yield on a cash flow basis. It pays out quarterly. Um, and then historically that group has averaged probably around 20% overall returns once the parks are sold. Um, we just closed out of a, a fund and they're probably going to get about 14, 15% annualized returns. And that um, includes their yield that came out of correct. it. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And that was done mainly because that operator decided to, um, not all the parks they sold, they sold a package of parks basically. And some of them weren't fully maximized on value. Right. Like they were still kind of renovating some things. Um, but someone came in and bought a kind of a portfolio of homes. So that's right. why, the, but historically their returns are 20 plus percent, which is great. But the downside of that is liquidity. So, right. you know, most of their parks they are holding for eight, 10, 12 years. So that goes back to alternatives versus liquid markets is, is timelines and, right. you know, hold times and that sort of thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
All right, so as far as returns go, so now I'm now I'm super, now I'm, now I'm super curious here, okay? Because we've got Dorper Sheep, we got mobile home parks, um, and I and just kind of to, to put an overview on this from an alternate investment standpoint, I, the most common alternate investment, I mean, is it what uh, apartments, uh, real estate in general, real yeah. estate in general. So apartments, um, there's some residential. I mean, I've heard uh, residential. Obviously, you have residential rent, rental incomes. You've got apartments. Multifamily, you've got the uh, mobile home parks, you've got um, I've seen parking lot spaces, yeah. the parking lot fund uh, out there. So, did I with, read an article about that within real estate? You've got several different diversifications. So, I read an article because you self storage, uh, super interesting. Because I, I think I saw a pitch on parking lots once, and they talked about how um, uh, downtown centers were actually they looked more developed back in the 1950s than they do today because they've had to clear out spaces for parking. Um, but I read an article about uh, how parking is down in downtown areas simply from a Uber and a and a urban gentrification standpoint trend that's happening in the United States. Gotcha. Which is kind of interesting. But um, uh, so as far as Oakland goes, right? So you you bring these to market for for groups um, uh, more than just the ultra. Ten million dollar investor, like like you did in New Jersey, so you bring these to market for for the average investor. What is the best return that you've gotten for your clients on a Oakwood investment? Well, it's probably still ongoing. Um, I've done one small deal in Dallas um, that sold for high thirties in about an eighteen month return so 18 months 38 39 percent return um that was a one-off deal uh but as far as the fund goes what was uh, that deal so 30 39 percent return in 18 months what uh was it, it was building just, or? we were able to buy it right and we flipped it to um actually a partner of mine he ended up buying it below appraised value but still for the investors they still made a 39 percent return basically so um we were able to buy it um uh, what was that? We probably 150,000 under um, what it appraised for when we bought it, and then once we fixed it up a little bit, we were able to sell it for a little bit more. So, turned out pretty good. But those are, I mean, those are kind of lucky deals in some ways. But you know, the current deals, like I said, um, we've got the material supply fund that we're paying 24 percent, 25 percent annual returns to investors. Dang, dude! Well, hold on. That sounds pretty sporty. That rolls off your tongue. You're like 24%, you know, ho hum. We asked about the best returns. I'm just giving you the higher level. What's the material supply fund do? So we, uh, we're a supplier of materials. Wow, that's super. <laughs> you came up with a really unique name for that one. The material supply so, fund. So, yes. So, so if I supply materials, I can make, uh, and you guys would be making money too, right? So if, if uh, there, I can make some sick returns on, on providing materials? Yeah, so you have to be a supplier, so first of all, and then, so my partner is a supplier, uh, and you've got to have connections with contractors and subs. So essentially, we are buying materials, uh, delivering them to projects, uh, and marking up the materials just like you would at a grocery store, getting markup at uh, candy. You know, they're buying it for 60 cents, they're selling it for a dollar. So we're doing the same thing with materials, is we're able to buy the materials, deliver it to the job sites, and then um, mark those materials up for that sub. It allows the sub not to have to come out of pocket money 
and keep cash to you know find more jobs or hire more employees or whatever it may be so they can grow typically it only works on projects that you know the, the margins on the materials are high so roofing is a common one where your average roofer might mark up the materials 30 40 percent so and then they have the labor on top of that so if they can mark up the materials 30 40 percent we can supply the materials charge them you know a 10 percent markup then they're still making their 2030, but now they're not out of pocket two or 300,000 for a roof, a commercial roof or something. Right. So it saves them. It's more of a cash flow play for them. Saves them out of pocket cash, not have to worry about not getting paid to pay their supplier. Mm-hmm. We're paying it. We're sitting on the, the time. Right. So, you know, there was a, uh, there's a study that came out, um, over a three year period and they, you know, pulled businesses, of, of why they went out of business. Like what reasons in your business? Was it partnership issues? Was it, I mean, you name it. Um, or was it cause work dried up? Was it because, um, sales fell, you know, and it wasn't, uh, 71% of the time it wasn't the work dried up. It wasn't, um, uh, that sales fell. It was cash flow, Right. And so they got into a cash flow pickle and they, um, you know, where they're, they haven't received their receivables. Right. And they've got work to do, but they've got no cash to go out and do the work. Sure. Right. And so that's what we're doing here. Essentially, you have a lot of these subs that will go get a supply. You know, they'll have a supplier they'll get the materials from, but they might be on a 30 or 60 day job account or whatever it may be. And so the general contractor might say, well, I'll pay you, I'll pay you and just kind of slow pay them. So the sub starts getting nervous because if 60 days hits and they're not paid yet by the GC, the supplier cuts them off. So now they can't even do their normal work because they're cut off from their supplier until they get paid. So it's a shame because they've done the work and now it's the GC or the owner that's slow paying these guys down, down the, down the pole basically. And so now we're able to wait that out. So we're like, okay. We'll and the wait. longer you wait it out, the more money you make. So we have it set up as a, it's a markup for what we think is done. And then we can charge fees on top of that. Right. So, but as a supplier too, you have certain lien rights and stuff, but um, we're willing to wait it out. And then we can also do that. Whereas sub typically they're because of cash flow. What if you don't get paid? What if the sub never pays so you? You can always um, foreclose on the property as a supplier. As a supplier? So you can go and put a, you have to follow the certain, there's certain uh, steps you have to take. You have to, you know, file a lien affidavit. You have to perfect the lien and you can go after the, then you can go foreclose on the property. So as a supplier, if a, an owner sees that a supplier has put a lien on a property, he should be, he can get nervous. So he, that's why we feel like we're in a pretty good lien position from that perspective because we can. Because it's not the sub that gets nervous, it's the owner of the property? Correct. The owner of the GC. So we can go sue the owner or the GC. Or the sub. Even though your contract's with the sub. Correct. Because all we've done is delivered the supply to the job site. So we've done our job. Interesting. So if there's something ever happens within the flooring was installed incorrectly or whatever it may be, you know, the GC could say, well, I'm not paying you for that, but we can still get paid because we paid for the materials. We delivered it to the job site. It's not our fault that it wasn't yeah. the right colors or anything like that. So it's, it's, it's a tricky business. Some people hear construction and they get scared. Um, we feel like because of this, the, the supply laws in certain states that we work in, like Texas and Florida, that um, we're in a nice lean position. And if we have to wait three, four, five months to get paid, we'll get paid or else we'll take over the property. Right. 
we had to. We wouldn't want to, but unless they're, well, we just don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to be that guy. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. But, uh, <clears throat> all right, so, well, there's all these things out there, right? I guess my, so I'm super curious. We're here on talking Benjamins, right? How do you how do you invest your Benjamins? If, your, you, if you have all these things, if you have all these things out there, how are you investing your personal money? What's your marketing efforts here? Uh, I, I'm sorry. Should I? <laughs> I should put a banner behind myself while we're doing this. We're gonna take uh, thirty seconds here to go to our, our breaks. Uh, I I invest in all my deals. Uh, I feel like it's important as all the deals you propose to your clients. Correct. So huh. I, I feel like it's important to be an investor in the deal and you know, invest alongside my clients. Awesome. So, um, so yeah, so it, I'm basically managing my own money in the same ways I'm investing for clients money. So, um, dude, I like that. I, I think that's, you know, as far as nuggets for people to take away from this, I think that's an awesome question to ask their advisor, right? Is, you know, well, two part question, right? How, how do you invest your money? Okay. And, and what they're proposing to you, they should invest in. Right. And two, if they're not, why? Um, you know, and part of that is if they don't have any money to invest and they're not following the instructions they're giving out to people. Correct. <laughs> Correct. There's that, there's that part of it too, Correct. right? The cobbler's kids go shoeless or what's the saying? Sure. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that's cool, man. So every, every deal you put out, every deal you propose, you have your own. So just $150 in each deal, right? <laughs> no, a little more than that. <laughs> But I mean, I feel it's important. I mean, but at the same time, I have clients that put a lot more money in than I do, obviously, but they're investing in maybe three or four deals and I'm investing in 10, 15 potential deals. Sure, so, sure. Um, but, I, you know, it's it's important to me just to, to invest with them. Um, and that ranges from, you know, five to 20, something like that. So Yeah. Nice, man. Yep. Very cool. So not to get too far back into your youth, right? But if you had to give advice to your 18-year-old self, if you had to give advice to your 18 year old self about money, what would you tell yourself? Well, I was very, um, I'm unique, I guess, because I was always about saving. So I'm a, I was always a saver growing up. So even when I mowed lawns, as I mentioned, um, you, I can, would, you can tell Reagan struggles with his ego. I would, <laughs> I am super unique. Yeah. Let me tell you. <laughs> Came across bad. No, but <laughs> I, I, I saved, I've always saved. And my dad looked at me one time, I think I was 16 or 17 and I went and bought Magellan, Fidelity Magellan mutual fund. When you were 16 or 17? Something like that. You're like, I got all this cash on hand. What should I do? <laughs> but I was in the market then, even in college, I would, you know. Dude, hey, that was bad timing, by the way, because isn't that sucker tank? I don't know. I got out of it, but it, okay. the point was, it was like number one loser in a way. I, I was, I started investing, you know, late in high school, basically. Yeah. So I just, I've always wanted been a saver. I've always liked the markets. I, and I had the wall street journal in college looking at stocks and stuff like that. But, but I've always just been a saver. Um, early on, I was like, Oh, I can save. And I don't even know where I got that from. My parents were savers, but they were never invested in the market. So they I were never that. like drilling down on you, save your money, save your money. No. Mow no. lawn, save your money. I, well, being an only child, I kind of got a lot of stuff too. So um, not that it was a lot, but I didn't have any, I mean, money that came to me, I didn't have to spend it because I got stuff for my birthday. I got stuff for Christmas or whatever it may be. So, right. Um, Unlike us paupers that have five siblings. <laughs> It's Six. like, it's like, ah, oh, my, uh, my, uh, I'm telling you, man, you talk about when my mom brought home a box of, you know, lucky charms or something like that, it was game on 
to see. <laughs> you got it first. I tell you, it's a blood sport, dude. Because if you're the last one to the box, it's gone, it's dude. Gone. If there's if there's five <laughs> siblings that get in front of you on that box, um, you're done. Yeah, you, you you miss out. So, so it was a single only child. Only you're child. just you know just manna from heaven, left and right. Yeah. And not my parents as much as my grandparents. You know, at Christmas, you got all the clothes, whatever you needed, obviously. Were you the only grandchild? No, no, no. I okay. was, but I was the youngest. Okay. So I was spoiled a little for my grandparents. But, um, but yeah, I mean, my grandpa would pay me for every soccer goal I scored. Or if I got an A, you know, in class, they'd give me a dollar, you know, for every A I got or something. So it just all went into an account. I'd save it. So over time, between uh, grades so, and... So you talk to your 18-year-old self, you're just like... Just keep doing just what keep, you're doing. <laughs> you're perfect. Just perfect. No, no. No, I think it's, it's just like we teach any kid even coming out of college. You just tell them, hey, start saving early and dollar cost average as much as you can. and um, <laughs> Put it all on Apple. Put it all on Apple, <laughs> Amazon. Uh, no, but I think it's just more of um, too many times. I think nowadays it's all about the here and now. You know, mm-hmm. what, what can I get now versus you know, delaying satisfaction basically. Sure. So I think that's, you know, you see these kids coming out with all this debt from college and, um, wanting to get the nice fancy car needing this now, the newest phone, you know, I just, I drive a 12 year old car. So to me, it's not that important, <laughs> but I mean, it's nice to, it's a nice to have, um, 12, new, new 12, stuff. 12 year old Ferrari. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I just think just kidding. it's more for delayed satisf- satisfaction. Yeah. So, it reminds me of that, uh, you ever read about the, uh, the marshmallow test? No. No? So they tested, so this is, this is old school, this is old school uh, test they did. So there's, so they stuck a marshmallow in front of the kid, right? And these are little kids, seven, eight years old. And it was, you know, if you can wait 10 minutes, I'll come back and give you a second marshmallow. If you eat it, you don't get a second marshmallow. And some of these kids could wait 10 minutes and get two marshmallows. Other kids are like, forget this. And they just ate the marshmallow. Yeah. And then they track down these kids later in their life and, you know, essentially put determining factors of success, whether that be financial success, uh, financial stability, um, successful marriages. Right. Um, so on and so forth. Right. And hands down, the kids that delayed their satisfaction for 10 minutes for that second marshmallow um, on all these determining factors, uh, they panned out a lot better than... You know, and that makes me think of if I put a marshmallow in front of each one of my kids, <laughs> who's going to be successful? <laughs> I can tell you which ones would eat it like that. <laughs> like I need to focus on those children a little more. <laughs> it's all about marshmallows. That's right. It's all about the marshmallow. <laughs> that's funny. So don't know. I, I, that's what I would say. I think at the end of the day, it's just, it, uh, you know, it's not just it, the, the delayed satisfaction. Yeah, know? man. So. Awesome. So your 18 year old self, <laughs> you still haven't told your 18 year old self anything. I don't think back to my 18 year old self. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's say it's not about money <laughs> advice for your 18 year old self. Any advice? Do what you're passionate about. Um, you know, work hard, surround yourself with good people. Um, it's not all about you. It's a team environment, whatever you're doing with your spouse or your business partner. You know, someone told me, uh, there, there are going to be people that if they drag you down, just it's, it's just best to get kind of get, I don't say get rid of them, but just, you know, there's, there's other people out there. So just keep moving on to other people, I guess. But um, just provide good, stable networking around you, basically. So right. Good friends, 
uh, good quality ethical people, and it's, and you'll be you'll be just fine. Good deal. You're good people, Reagan. <laughs> Thank you. All right, man. Let's go to book club. Book club. What's I, your? F- I don't read. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> So before I even ask a question about a single book, the answer is, I don't read. Uh, articles, but not books, no. So if I said, what's your favorite nonfiction book? I couldn't tell you. Not a single one. I don't... Besides Talking Benjamins, are there any podcasts? Or... <laughs> so any, so no, no books on tape. You read articles. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the market, so I'm always sure. reading stuff about investments and tax planning strategies, retirement planning strategies. Just, just don't give me a 300-page book on it? Yeah. Um, so it's more specific. Have you ever read a book? Yes. But you can't say, I like that book. I'm just bad with names, remembering the titles of books. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So no <laughs> sorry, sorry to ruin your whole book club. <laughs> Man, you're buzz killed the book club. So you show up to the book club and you're like, I like hanging out with you guys. I read some articles. Oh, the book? No, I didn't read the book. Uh, I'll read a book, but I wish I I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. What about like a fiction book for fun? No. (laughs) I watched the movie. (laughs) I watched the movie. That's right. Harry Potter. I watched the movie. Exactly. Twilight. I watched. You watched the movie. No. (laughs) I did not. Come on. Team Jacob or Team. What's the, what's the other one? I don't know. I didn't see it. Edward. There it is. <laughs> didn't see it. <laughs> <coughs> All right. Book club doesn't exist. Dude, thanks for coming out, man. Is there, I'm uh, sorry. Put a bus go on your book club. I know. Yeah. I'm like trying like, a, let's wrap up. Share some book wisdom with us. I don't read. Life is my book. <laughs> you so. ask my wife, I'm the most even keel yeah. guy, which I guess is a good thing. There's my phone. <laughs> That's super awesome. What, what the heck is that ringtone? Turn that off. It's over there. It's <laughs> Is it over? Nope. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, but to, uh, no, thank you for coming out, man. But to wrap up, um, um, we want to give you a little soapbox minute, right? Um, What's the best piece of advice you could give me? <laughs> oh, take care of your kids and your wife. <laughs> and take care of your clients. Now, um, you know, as advisors, we're, we are in a fiduciary role. So that's one thing that I think separates us. And you, you know this as well. But, you know, a lot of, uh, one of the reasons I do invest alongside my clients is to act like I'm treating them as me, you know, and as a fiduciary, you always want to put them first, even if that might hurt you in some ways, um, from an investment perspective, but you know, it's not always about the returns. It's not always about making money. It's doing what to me, it comes back to ethics and making sure you're doing what you're saying you're going to do and you're going to treat your clients the way you want to be treated. Um, and, and making sure they understand that and and things could go wrong, but if they know that you're doing the best that you can, because you're treating them with that respect to me, that's, that's what's the most important thing. So, you know, just always being my, I guess my soap opera, soapbox or whatever it would be that whole Bible verse doing to others as you would have them doing to you. And I think if you treat people the way you want to be treated at the end of the day, 
and are, you know, stand by your word and treat people with respect and do things the right way, you're going to get a lot more people's respect and stuff. And hopefully they'll treat you the same way. Awesome, man. Good old boy Close, network. I'm telling you, man, clo- closing, closing with wise words from the good book and Aretha Franklin, <laughs> R-E-S-P-C-T. <laughs> awesome, man. Thanks for coming on, dude. Thank you for having me. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of Talking Benjamins. If you would like to follow us on Instagram, it would be our pleasure to be followed at Talking Benjamins one That is at Talking Benjamins, the number one. Also, you can find us at TalkingBenjamins.com for show notes and our blog. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed, we highly encourage you to leave a positive comment. If you didn't enjoy, feel free not to comment. And either way, out of the goodness of your heart, text someone the link to this episode if you think they would enjoy it. Thank you again for listening. Talking Benjamins. Talking Benjamins. Talking Benjamins.